0: Amen. Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew? <clears throat> Excuse me. Gospel according to Matthew. And we are finding ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter twenty seven, in verses one through ten. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Matthew chapter 27 and verses 1 through 10, the word of God, let's give it our attention. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field. As the Lord directed me. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. What do you regret? What do you regret? In spite of the current cultural mantra that we often hear that we should live without regrets or have no regrets, the truth is that we have all of us done many things that we regret. We've all had those moments uh, where we wish we could unsay what we've just said, we wish we could undo what we've done and do something different. We've all had those moments where we are suddenly overwhelmed with grief and remorse for our actions. Sometimes the Lord gives us opportunity to make things right. Sometimes restitution is able to be made. Sometimes relationships are able to be restored. Sometimes there's time to undo things. There are, of course, other times when there's simply no good way to fix the situation, no way to unbreak what has been broken. Consider Peter. Consider his denials. Consider that for all Peter knew, the last time he would look into the eyes of his Savior, it was just having renounced him. How do you get up from that? How do you go on? How do you live with yourself? Consider Judas. Consider the betrayal of one who had only ever been a friend. Consider how personally responsible he was for the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. How do you get up from that? how do you go on how do you live with yourself consider the way that the fall of these two disciples peter and judas are set side by side in matthew's gospel account in our passage today we are meant to read this account of judas's remorse in contrast to the account of peter's repentance in the last passage we considered that repentance of Peter we considered uh, his denials of Christ right we considered the way that Satan Jesus said was attempting to sift him like wheat that image of wheat being sifted and shaken so that the heads of the wheat are removed from the chaff it's a violent imagery this is what Satan was attempting to do with Peter's faith attempting to shake him and bring him to a place of despair, a place that he couldn't get up from, a place that he couldn't move on from. But we were also reminded of that precious doctrine of the perseverance and preservation of the saints. That even as Satan, the roaring lion, was seeking to devour Peter, in that moment of weakness, Jesus was praying for him. Uh, Jesus said, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like weak, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. At the very moment when Peter was failing Christ, Christ was not failing Peter. Christ was praying that his faith would not fail. That is to say, Christ was guarding Peter through faith, praying that Peter would persevere in faith and repentance. So that as the morning dawned, the Lord was pleased to use the crowing of that rooster to awaken Peter to his sins and to move him uh, to grief and hatred for his sins, but also not to leave him there, but to move him out of grief and hatred for his sins in faith to himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul refers to that kind of grief and sorrow for sin as the godly grief that leads us to repentance. Godly grief that leads us to repentance. But in that same place, Paul also speaks of another kind of grief, another kind of sorrow. In contrast to that godly grief that leads us to repentance, uh, he says that there is also a worldly grief that produces death. And tragically, that's the sort of grief and remorse that we see in Judas. A sad sort of remorse turned in on itself that ultimately leads to his ruin and to death, doesn't it? Well, as we look at this rather tragic and sobering passage together, I pray that the Lord would use it to several ends this morning. First, that he would give us a clear sight and sense of our sins, And of what our sins deserve. That we would see that we are not unlike Peter and Judas. Uh, Secondly, that he would give us an even clearer sight of our Savior. Of the grace that he offers to sinners as he is bringing about his purposes for the salvation of his people. And finally, that the Lord would also be pleased to give us, especially in those moments of deep regret, those moments that we are unsure if we can get up and move on. That he would give us the gifts of faith and repentance. That he would lead us back to our Savior. And so as we look at this passage together then, I want to consider several things that we find here. We find here a conspiracy. We find here a confession. We also find here a confirmation. First, a conspiracy is the leader's of Israel take counsel and they conspire against Jesus to put him to death in verses 1 through 2. Uh, We also find a confession as Judas, being filled with remorse, testifies against himself, but also exonerates Christ. He's an innocent man. And finally, we find here a confirmation as the actions of Judas and the leaders only serve to confirm what the scriptures had foretold about God's eternal plan and purposes to save his people. A conspiracy, a confession, and a confirmation. First, a conspiracy. Uh, You know, when the rooster crowed that morning, the rooster was unaware that he was serving the purposes of God. Uh, The rooster did not know that he was God's tool to bring Peter to repentance. The rooster was just doing what roosters do. The rooster was anticipating the dawn. He was welcoming a new day. And in that way, the rooster's crowing not only served as a sign to Peter, but it also serves as a signal to the leaders of Israel. You see, they have been conducting this sort of covert trial of Jesus under the cover of darkness. You might remember uh, that it was illegal to conduct a trial of at night, in the interest of justice, trials were to be conducted during the day, and yet it was during the night that Jesus is arrested, he's dragged into the court of the high priest. Uh, you might remember how chapter 26 begins, uh, how the elders of the people in Caiaphas were plotting together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. They wanted to do this by stealth. And they said, it must not be during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. And so while all the people slept, while all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and while all the pilgrims there for the feast were tucked away in their beds, they arrested him, they sought and they heard false testimony against him, and they have even already heard the verdict against him. All that remains is for the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, to make their final decision. But they're waiting. Why are they waiting? After all, they've already heard and accepted this false testimony. They've already heard the verdict. They've already made up their minds. They'd made up their minds long before they even enacted the plan, they were conspiring against him from the start. They're just waiting for the morning. They're just waiting for the light of day so they can check the box and say, this trial was conducted during the day so that they can justify their illicit actions. And while they're waiting for the morning, we're told in verse 67 that they spit in his face and they struck him and they slapped him and they said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? While they are waiting for the morning, They are shamefully treating him. While they are waiting for the morning, Peter is denying his Lord. While they are waiting for the morning, Judas is watching to see what the outcome will be. And then the rooster crows and signals the dawn, convicting Peter and cueing the council to render its final judgment. So that as we begin this passage, we read, When morning came... All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. They were a legitimate court. They were charged with maintaining civil and spiritual order in Israel, and yet this council, the Sanhedrin, did not have the authority to administer the death penalty. The Romans had taken that right away from them, the right to exercise capital punishment. And so if they were going to accomplish their ends, if they were going to do what they wanted to do, they still had to deliver Jesus over to Pilate for sentencing. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. It's why the high priest put Jesus under an oath saying, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, You see, they knew that a charge of temple sacrilege would not be enough to convict him. Uh, They knew that the Roman authorities would laugh at a charge of blasphemy. But if they could somehow persuade Pilate that Jesus was a rival king, if they could somehow persuade Pilate that he was a conspirator against Rome, that he was the king of the Jews, and that he had come to overthrow the Roman government... That might just be enough. And so they bind Jesus, they lead him away, and they deliver him over to Pilate, the governor, for sentencing. It's not incidental that his first question to Jesus will be, are you the king of the Jews? And it's here that Judas now enters the picture. And so having considered this conspiracy uh, as the context Let's consider the confession that Judas makes here. In verse 3, we read Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Uh, Notice how the whole account involving Judas hinges on his sense of guilt and remorse. It's maybe not quite as easy to see in the English translation before you if you're using the ESV. uh, Because the ESV translates this Greek word regret as he changed his mind. Uh, But the word really doesn't emphasize a change of mind so much as it does the pangs of guilt that one feels and the desire to undo what you've done, to change your mind in that sense. It's better, I think, translated by those versions that translate this as he was seized with remorse or he was overwhelmed with regret. As Jesus is condemned, the reality of what he has done is now starting to sink in. Uh, You might be asking, like I was asking, well, what did he expect was going to happen? What did he think would happen in delivering Jesus over to these rulers? And yet it seems to be implied in our text that he did not expect him to be condemned to death. Whatever he expected... He did not anticipate that he would receive the death penalty. This question has led to various opinions. Uh, Some hypothesize that Judas, in his zeal to see the messianic kingdom brought in, uh, many believe that Judas was a zealot, that he's sort of nudging Jesus toward glory. That uh, in his misunderstanding of the nature of Jesus' kingdom, what he did in turning him over he did with a sort of hope and expectation that a confrontation would bring out the power of Jesus. He'd seen Jesus do remarkable things. Uh, Is he here hoping that Jesus is going to finally act? It's the opinion of some. I think more likely, more likely, I think, is the opinion that Judas had just become disenchanted with Jesus that he'd become disenchanted with his messianic claims, that somewhere along the way, Judas had given up hope that Jesus was the Messiah at all, that he had come to believe that he was instead just another messianic pretender. And so, since there would be no glory coming his way, he might as well get a little bit of gain by turning him in, a little notoriety by turning over this defector. In either case, whatever lie he's believing, I'm not sure we have clarity, whatever lie he's believing, we can say for certain that it's from the devil. Luke tells us that Satan entered Judas Iscariot and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers that he might betray him. Whatever he was believing... It was the lie of Satan being perpetuated in his heart and mind. And he did not anticipate that this would be the final outcome. After all, whatever, whatever Judas thought about Jesus as the Messiah, there was something he knew without a doubt. He knew that Jesus was a good man. He knew that he was an innocent man. He knew that he was not deserving of death. In fact, he had been with Jesus for three years. Few, if any, had a better front row seat to the righteousness of Jesus, to the kindness, the goodness, the compassion, the mercy of Jesus, the integrity. If Judas knew anything at all, he knew that Jesus was an innocent man And so in a desperate attempt to alleviate his guilt then, he brings back the 30 pieces of silver, right? He comes and he confesses to the chief priests and the elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now just think of the image that these words paint for us. Uh, Maybe you've seen this famous painting uh, by Edward Armitage, The Remorse of Judas. Judas is portrayed as... Pleadingly thrusting the silver with an outstretched hand back to the priests, begging them to take the silver, and they, with sideways glances, look uh, at him in disdain, turning their backs to him. And Armitage uh, puts a vulture flying above their heads as a sort of foreboding symbol of what will be the outcome of this exchange. When you reflect on this confession of Judas and of this response uh, by the religious leaders, I think there's basically just two things that we're meant to appreciate and to feel. The first of these is the true innocence of Jesus. The two words that are used in this trial to describe Jesus are by Judas and by Pilate's wife. Judas says he's an innocent man. Pilate's wife calls him a righteous man. Here he is on trial for blasphemy, on trial, falsely accused. And the testimony to him is that he is an innocent and righteous man. In this judicial context, we are meant to feel that. We are meant to understand that a righteous and innocent man is being condemned to death. That is the substrate of the gospel. The gospel message depends upon this foundational understanding that he who is without sin, that one who is wholly righteous, innocent, and blameless, is made to be sin for us. The other thing that I think we're meant to appreciate in this confession of Judas is the sinfulness and guilt Of both Judas and the religious leaders. At least Judas confesses his guilt. At least he confesses that he's sinned by betraying innocent blood. The priests are just as guilty as he is, but they they will not own it. Uh, Not only did they conspire with him, but now as he comes confessing his sins, they pretend the guilt is his alone. What is that to us? See to it yourself. I just want you to appreciate this for a moment. Who are these men? These are the shepherds of Israel. These are the men who have been entrusted with the care and the oversight of God's people and their spiritual condition. If you just put it into our context for a moment, these are the pastors and the elders of the church. In fact, the word Presbyteroi is, that's the word for elders here. The same reason we call ourselves Presbyterians, ruled by elders. These are the pastors, the shepherds, and the elders of the church underage. Imagine a congregant coming to the session, overwhelmed with guilt, Overwhelmed with grief and remorse, and he comes and he's confessing his sins. What should pastors and elders do? At the very least, at the very least, they should remind him that God is merciful and gracious, that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he is a God who forgives. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. He's a God who's provided a way for guilty sinners to be free from their guilt, to find forgiveness through sacrifice and offering. They should preach the gospel to him. They should call him to repentance. That's what they should do. So how great is their guilt that rather than care for his wretched soul in this hour of need trembling under the terror of conscience, that they do not point him to a merciful and atoning God, but they point him back to himself. See to it yourself. That's on you. What should Judas have done? What should any of us do When we sin and are overwhelmed by guilt, this is often a question that I like to ask our children when we are sitting with them as a session seeking to discern whether they're ready to come to the Lord's table. I'll often ask them about how they feel when they sin. When you have sinned against your parents or you've sinned against your brother or sister or you've just sinned against God alone, how does that make you feel? They always tell me bad. (laughs) I feel guilty. And then I ask them a follow-up question. I say, and what do you do with that guilt? What do you do when you feel guilty? What do you do when you know you've wronged somebody? And they often give me the right answer. I pray. I tell God I'm sorry. I ask Him to forgive me. It's really as simple as that. God tells us in his word that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Matthew Henry makes this, I think, insightful comment. He says, Judas sinned more in despairing of the mercy of God than in betraying his master's blood. He sinned more in despairing of the mercy of God than in betraying his master's blood. It's one thing to betray him. It's another thing to say, your mercy is not big enough for me. Regret and sorrow for our sin is right. It's good. It's a necessary thing. But you see, it will only benefit us if it actually drives us back to Christ. There is a good sort of grief, a grief that says, I did this. I regret it. I'm sorry. I don't want to do this again. I don't want to be this way. Lord, forgive me. Help me. That's a good sort of grief. That is a godly grief that leads us to repentance. But there's also a bad sort of grief, a grief that says, I am this. I hate myself. There's no way back. That sort of grief is not from the Lord. That sort of grief is a tool in the hand of Satan. It's a lie that he uses to kill, steal, and destroy. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Those are the two things that Jesus highlights about the devil. He is a liar and he is a murderer. He comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And he fosters in people that worldly sort of grief that leads to death. And sadly and soberly, that is exactly where Judas' grief leads him. It leads him to death. He can't live with himself. And he will not look to Christ. And so he throws the money into the temple treasury. And the Bible tells us that he went and he hanged himself. It leads him to this final despair of life. And while it's sad and sobering, it's also no less than he deserves. That's a hard thing to say. And here's the harder thing it's no less than you deserve. It's no less than any of us deserve outside of Christ. The wages of sin is death. And the fact of the matter is that the despair and the torment that led up to his physical death was but a small foretaste of the spiritual anguish and torment of hell. A place that Jesus describes throughout Matthew's gospel as the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth if that is not an image that that just screams regret i don't know if there's a better one beloved for those who do not know christ death is not an escape from suffering it's not an escape from misery If you don't know Christ, death is the confirmation, the consummation, and the continuation of suffering, which is the whole reason Christ came, right? It's the whole reason he came. It's the whole reason he's here in this moment, that he comes to suffer not just the anguish of physical death, but to suffer the anguish and torment of that spiritual and eternal death which is due to his people. Brings us to our final point, then. We've seen the conspiracy and the confession. Consider how all of this is serving to confirm what God had foretold through his prophets. Verses 6 through 10, we read that the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. I'm not going to re-preach all that I preached about the thirty pieces and how that was the price for a slave in the Old Testament law, that this is the value that they set on Christ. I just want you to appreciate the irony here, how thick it is as the priests are gathering up this silver, silver that they themselves had given to Judas, bribing him, and yet now are concerned that it's going to defile the temple. It's not the silver that defiles the temple. It's these priests and elders that defile the temple. It's these ungodly men. It's because of them that Jesus says this temple will be destroyed and every stone will be thrown down. They are the ones who have turned his house into a den of thieves. But in any case, they gather up the money and they go and they use it to buy the potter's field. The potter's field is, is likely just a place where the potters would harvest the raw materials for their pots dig down to the clay level, and uh, leave holes, which might also serve as burial plots. And so in an effort to do something, you know, good with this blood money, they buy the field as a burial place for strangers, which comes to be known as the field of blood. But Matthew tells us, notice what he is highlighting here. He tells us that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now, maybe you're looking at this and you're thinking, Jeremiah, did Matthew make a mistake here? After all, um, though there are similarities to things in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19 and Jeremiah 36, this is a direct quotation from Zechariah. Was there a slip of the, the pen? Does this foil up our doctrine of inerrancy? Not at all. This is just a common way... Of citing scripture. Uh, In the Gospels, Matthew's just doing what the Gospel writers do. When they are bringing together one or more prophecies, prophecies from two Old Testament prophets, they cite it and then they list the major prophet. And so since Jeremiah is a major prophet and Zechariah is a minor prophet, it's Jeremiah who gets the citation. And there's other examples of this in the New Testament. It was just the way uh, they cited things. But without getting bogged down into that, I want to make the simple point that however this may appear, it is God's plan and purpose that is coming to pass. Down to the smallest details about the amount of money that is paid And about the way that money is used to buy the potter's field. It looks, as you read this, that Jesus is is just the sad victim of these powerful men. That he is a pawn in their game. And he is a victim of them. But it's at the same time true that they are pawns in God's sovereign plan and purpose. That God is bringing about his purpose down to the very last detail. This is the way that uh, the the saints say it in Acts chapter 4 as they are praying. They put it this way. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. These two truths are true at the same time. They are guilty and they are responsible, and yet none of this is outside of God's sovereign control. The death of Jesus is not an accident of history. In fact, it is the event upon which all of history turns. It is the event to which all of history was moving. It is the event that all of history looks back upon. God is in control. The Bible makes it clear that Satan is at work, right? That these leaders are scheming. But as Duncan says, this is God's stratagem against Satan for the saving of your soul. And that should comfort us to know that in spite of all of this, God is at work. Let me just, in conclusion, bring you back to where we began. Because I think this this is the real heart of what the Spirit would say to us today. Let me ask the question again. What do you regret? If you don't have any regrets, there's a problem. If you don't have any regrets, and it can only be because you do not Really appreciate the depth of the sinfulness of your own heart. But if you do have regrets, if you have a sight and sense of your sins and of what they deserve, and you understand the necessity of the death of Christ, you understand that why he had to be an innocent and righteous substitute for sinners. But more important than the question, what do you regret, is the the far more important question, What do you do with your regret? What do you do with your guilt, beloved? How do you live with yourself? When you look in the mirror, how do you live with yourself? You only live with yourself if you bring it to Jesus, if you come to him in faith and repentance. Because in the end, that is the difference between Judas and Peter, Isn't it? Judas went to his conspirators and he confessed to them, but he never went to the Lord. We don't see him like like that penitent tax collector going to the temple, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He tries to do it on his own terms. He, He tries to make it right on his own. He tries to undo what is done, but it can't be undone. And rather than turn in mercy to Christ, he listens to the lies of Satan and he turns to his own hand to bring him relief, a relief that he will not find. And a relief that you will not find outside of Christ. The only one who can absolve us of our guilt is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a litany of regrets. Beloved, I want to tell you today don't despair over them. Bring them to Jesus. Bring them to the one whose sacrifice and satisfaction are perfect. Praise the Lord for grief. Praise the Lord that for that godly grief that leads you to repentance, that leads you to look to Christ in faith, that calls to you and says, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I'll give you rest for your souls. Beloved, we must bring our regrets to Christ. That is the only place we will find satisfaction. Amen? Amen. Let's go to him in prayer now. O Lord, in your word, you called Judas the son of perdition. He was acting according to your plans and purposes, and yet, even as he was betraying you, you called him friend. Lord, Peter, your servant, boneheaded and stubborn, denied you repeatedly, and that you were praying for him that his faith may not fail. Even now, Lord, you are interceding for us guarding us through faith for the salvation that is ready to be revealed, for that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us who through God's power are being guarded through faith. Lord, even now you are guarding your people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us not to despair of our sins. Lord, when we think of the ways in which we have betrayed you, the ways we have denied you, the ways in which uh, we have to our shame, to our shame, done evil against you, and yet you are kind to us, you call us friend, you pray for us that our faith may not fail. Lord, might we stand in it and might we not despair, but might we turn always in faith and repentance to You. Lord, give us that godly grief. Help us not to be flippant in our sin. Help us not to be comfortable in our sin. But Lord, give us that godly grief that leads us to repentance. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. i had chosen that particular hymn, that psalm, because it's a psalm that Jesus quotes about His enemy. That even my close friend turned his back on me, he whom I trusted and who shared my bread. And as you read through that psalm, it's a psalm of hope, as the psalmist is trusting in the Lord who's delivering from him from his enemies, uh, and that is our song. The Lord delivers us from our enemies, but it's our song of deliverance because Christ was given over to these enemies on our behalf. Uh, and so it's a beautiful back and forth, and I, I hope that uh, you might have a chance to reflect on the words of this psalm. And of course, one of the ways in which the Lord reminds us of what He has accomplished is through this meal. And this, this meal signifies the ways in which Jesus was given over to His enemies, to those who dis- devised wicked, wicked schemes against Him, who plotted against Him who took over his soul. And yet this meal comes to us not as a meal of curse, but as a meal of blessing. Uh, The cup of blessing that we bless, it is called. And it's a cup of blessing for us because this was the cup of curse that our Savior drank. And so if you're uh, here today and you are struggling And you have regrets. This is a meal that is meant to encourage you. This is a meal that is meant to remind you of all that your Savior has done on your behalf. And He calls you to come and to look in faith to Him again. And to know that godly grief leads you to repentance and to trusting in Christ and His finished work. Uh, But if you have not come to Christ, if you do not belong to Him in faith... If you have set yourself against him, this is not a meal for you. This is a meal for those who are in faith looking and longing for deliverance. Uh, And so uh, let me just ask how how do you know that you belong to Christ? It's very simple. You have placed your faith and your trust in him, you've been baptized into his name. He baptizes those. He gives them his benefits. He seals them by placing his name on them. And they belong to him. And they walk in fellowship and in repentance with him. And they belong to his church. And so if these things are true of you, if if you have professed your faith in Christ, if you belong to a a church where the gospel is faithfully being proclaimed, and if you are walking in faith and and repentance as one who's baptized into the name of Christ, then you're welcome to come and to join us in this meal. Uh, But if any of those things are not true of you, let me simply ask you to refrain from participating with us. But I would also tell you that even though you might let these elements pass today, do not let Christ pass. Uh, he is here to be received in faith and he promises to save all of those who would call upon his name. Uh, but for us, even if you are struggling and despairing today, look to Christ. Uh, let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, we thank you for these Sensible signs, signs that we can taste and touch and smell, uh, signs that you have condescended to our weakness to give us, so that we, um, in tasting these things, can taste your goodness, can be reminded of all that you have done on our behalf, uh, that the way that you raise your people up out of despair and regret. and and place their hopes upon your righteousness and your innocence. Lord, we ask that you would do that among us today, uh, that these uh, ordinary elements of bread and wine might now be set apart for this holy use, that as we receive them in faith, we might receive Christ himself and all of his benefits for our salvation and growth and grace. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.